Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon, its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day his heart rejoiced. He, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. I will go to the mountains of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amarna, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. She... Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. He, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Friends, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Thank you, Kath, and good morning, everybody. Let's, uh, can we pray together before we, um, before we get stuck into to that? Lord, we, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe what your word says to us uh, this morning. Amen. So we're, we're in the, if you're just joining us, we're in the Bible's book of uh, love poetry. 
And I think this is really important for us for two reasons. Poetry often has layers to it, and, and this has lots of layers to it. Uh, and if I want to see the first reason uh, for us being in this book and the reason for doing this series is that spiritually, we don't think that we can hear enough how loved we are uh, in Christ and how precious and delightful we are to the God who made us. Uh, and that is a good thing for our souls as Christians to, to hear. It's the main reason we wanted to do this series. But, but the second reason is that we are absolutely inundated uh, in the world around us with a vision for sex and romance and relationships. Uh, at pretty much every waking moment, the world is communicating something to us about these things. And, and the message is loud and clear, and the message is persuasive. And so it is vital for us as Christians to grasp hold of the vision that the living God who designed us has for these things. To look at things from a different perspective, so that which we often get to look at them. And, and what we get as we, as we turn to God in these things, we don't get like the how-tos or the rules to keep in the area of romance and relationships, but we get a beautiful vision of what things can be like through a celebration of an ideal romantic relationship. It's to captivate us and to help us live in the direction of these things. Remember, this is it's like an album of love songs composed by God himself. And this album of love songs is not here to condemn us or to make us feel spiritually dirty or to make us feel guilty, but it is a, fresh, um, a breath of fresh air because it reassures us of God's great redeeming love in Christ and it gives us wisdom, wisdom for our relationships with one another. Now, at the heart of the book is the reality and the experience that Jesus loves you. That's what's at the heart of it. And that idea, Jesus loves me, it's so simple a concept, isn't it? That my three-year-old son, even, he gets it. And yet it's so deep and so profound that we'll spend eternity trying and failing to grasp hold of it and to truly get it. And that's why it's not boring. And it's not dull. By this point, if you've been with us, we're four weeks in. You'll see that the themes are repeating. And, and it's kind of saying the same thing over and over through, this, through this, this album of love songs. But listen, that's not boring or dull because we don't just need to hear something once and in one way and at one time. No, this is a chance for us to really plumb the depths of Jesus' love for us together. Now, today we come to the wedding day of this young couple that we've been following. And actually also the wedding night of this young couple in love. And what Kath just read to us, um, I know it's kind of overwhelming at first of all of the imagery, but, but this is the easiest way I think to grasp it, is you get three snapshots of this big day. So the first snapshot we get, the first scene is the wedding procession of the wedding party on the way to the wedding. The second snapshot is like the groom's speech. And, and the third snapshot is the consummation of the marriage. So we're going to imagine that we're guests at a wedding. You've got your invite, you're all dressed up, and you're ready to party, and you're ready to attend the wedding. And, and the thing is, if you've been to a wedding, what you need to know is that you're not just an onlooker to the action, but as a guest at a wedding, actually, you're in a very real sense participating in it. You get caught up in it. A wedding is an immersive experience. All of the, the sights and the sounds and the tastes and, and the music and the people, and, and, and it's an experience for us to enter into and enter into the joy of it. And so that is true with this wedding that we're guests of today. What I find when I go to a wedding, I don't know if you find this, but it makes me quite reflective and thoughtful about my own life 
about my own love, about my own relationships. That can be a really good thing, and it can also be a really hard thing, can't it, depending on what our life situation or, or, or what, how we're doing at that time. Now, as we immerse ourselves in this wedding, in, in the Song of Songs, it's going to take us back to this ancient culture and this ancient time that is strange to us, and so some of the customs and imagery are strange, but it doesn't just take us back. It also takes us forward. Johnny explained last week that as Christians, we're looking forward to a great wedding day between Christ our groom and us as his people. And this wedding points us forward to that coming wedding party of the Lamb, the wedding party to end all weddings, the one that will bring history to its ultimate conclusion. And if we let this wedding that we're at today, in Song of Songs 3 to 5, if we let it go to work on our souls, if we let it point us forward to that wedding, then it will draw us into a deeper and a better experience of love both in our relationships with one another, but more importantly, in our relationship with Christ. So let's immerse ourselves in the wedding and let it do something on the inside of us. And here's the first scene that we see, and it's this idea of beholding the beautiful couple. The clicker seems to stop working. Here we go. Perhaps, can can you honor us? There we go, thank you. Um, So that's where we start in 3 verse 6. We're looking at this couple on the wedding day. The first scene is the wedding procession. Now, back then and there, uh, the bride and groom would travel together on their way to the wedding, and they'd have incense burning at the front of, of the procession. So the image for us, really, I think, is, is, is of one of our royal weddings. Think of William and Kate and their procession in this carriage through the streets of London and, uh, and in the stately carriage and all of the pomp and the ceremony and the, and the crowds that line the way. I mean, no, no one was cheering me on when I was on my way to my wedding, but, but this, is, this is a bit more like it. The, the crowd's eager to get a glimpse of, of the couple. And, and the groom is there, all noble in his, in, his, uh, in his strength. And the bride is there in her beauty. So in, in verses 6 to 11, the focus, first of all, is, is on him. Actually, the focus is more on, on his royal carriage and this, this military parade that ca- captures the attention. This is his carriage of fine wood and silver and gold. It's upholstered with purple. It's personified here as a beautiful woman. And we read that he's escorted by 60 noble warriors, each with his sword at his side. It's all picture language depicting his ability to provide abundantly and protect assuredly. She's going to want for nothing in his care. Now, now actually, in this poem here, the, the husband is described as King Solomon. And it's popular to think that actually this is King Solomon and, and his wife. And especially those of you who were around a few weeks ago, we saw the beginning of the book links it to, to Solomon as well. And it could well be him. It could be. But as I said when, when I introduced the series, I think there's many reasons, more reasons to think that it's not him or directly about him or by him than it is. Not least his approach to, to relationships and sexual ethics, which are very out of sync with what we have here. I think what the song is doing here is it's using royal imagery, imagery of a royal wedding, maybe even stealing a song from the royal wedding and, and, kind of, and using it in this common wedding of these two people to elevate this marriage and show its true grandeur. Remember, this is an ideal vision of a romantic relationship, but it's an ordinary, everyday couple, just like you and just like me. And here, the wedding is described as this grand royal wedding, and it elevates our vision of what a love relationship can be and can look like to inspire us. Now, they got a lot of stick for doing it. This is the best picture I could get of it. But this is the Beckhams on their wedding day. I don't know if you, you remember. I mean, it's a long time ago. But they sat on thrones 
on their wedding day. And everyone kind of, you know, poked at them for that. But they got something true. If you're not going to be a king or a queen on your wedding day, when are you going to be? And so in verse 11, we see the encouragement to the daughters of Jerusalem. Who of you like are the bridesmaids? Come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on this king wearing his crown. Behold this king. Behold is this kind of old word. And what it means is look. But it's not just like, oh, look over there and then, and then you know, move on to something else. No, it's, it's behold, it's look, it's pay attention. It's, it's look, this is amazing. You've got to see this and you've got to keep looking at this. Be captivated by it. It's those adoring crowds lining the streets for the royal possession, eager to get a glimpse, holding their phone above their heads so they can record what's going on. This is the day, this is the king on the day of his wedding. The day that his heart rejoiced. He's all noble and majestic in glory and in splendor. You know, when something is truly beautiful, when something has splendor, when something is majestic and wonderful, it is to be looked at and appreciated. It is to be dwelled upon and beheld. Think, I don't know, in your own life, think of the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. Just beckon you, didn't you? Just sit and stop and just look and just do nothing but look at it for a moment. Or I don't know if you've ever been up a big hill or a mountain where you just get this, suddenly this amazing view and it just commands you to stop and to look and reflect for a moment. That, that, that beautiful scene that you see, it is worthy of attention. It, it is worthy of stopping and pausing. And as you do that, there's a sense in which it does something to you, doesn't it? It maybe brings peace or calm to your soul. Or, or, or I, I don't know, but it changes you on the inside when you behold beauty for a while. What if that's true of a, a sunset or a nice view from a hill? How much more so are we as people beckoned and invited to behold the beauty and the glory and the splendor of Jesus, the King of Heaven, our spiritual husband? How much more so are we changed on the inside as we contemplate his glory, as we taste and see that the Lord is good. At that wedding at the end of history, we're told that every every eye will see and every heart will acknowledge and behold Jesus and his majesty and in his greatness and in his glory and his victory procession. Everyone will see it and acknowledge it in that day. There'll be loads going on at the end of the world as we know it. There'll be a really busy scene and yet everyone's eyes and everyone's heart will be directed towards him. It'll be unavoidable. The day is coming when we will all behold him. By faith as his people, we get to do it today. We get to behold him and look on him and delight in him, our God and our King. Look, daughters of Zion, look. Look at this king. The eyes of the whole world are on the groom. But he has eyes for only one person. Look at 4 verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. With all of the world watching on, it's to him as if there's only two people in the world, him and the one who he loves, who he has eyes for. You know, there's that, there's that beautiful moment in a wedding day. I think it's probably my favorite moment in a wedding day where the, the bride turns down the aisle and the groom for the first time that day, in the way we do it in our culture, sets his eyes on her. 
as she walks down the aisle towards him. I love to look. I, I look at the bride then, but I also look at the, I like to love to look at the groom in that moment. Beaming with delight, often overcome with emotion, holding back the tears, whatever, whatever it looks like. This is the day that his heart rejoices in the beauty of his bride and the life that they will now live together. And so the groom here, he, he dwells on and he takes in her beauty. And then he goes on in great detail to poetically describe just what he uh, finds beautiful about her. He, he goes on in, in, in the early part of chapter 4 to describe and compliment seven different features. Uh, in the Bible, the number seven is a, is a number of completion and perfection. Now, now, admittedly, as he does this, we've got a bit of a culture shift, okay? So we saw a few weeks ago, the first thing that the guy compared uh, his love to was a horse, okay? And um, we saw that early on. Now, here, he goes on to goats, a flock of sheep, and gazelles, and fawns, and all of these. You've got, like, he's going through the farmyard, basically. <laughs> like, now, not all of this translates culturally. I think we need to acknowledge that. It doesn't seem complimentary to us. And, and actually, it's quite funny when you read some of the theologians and stuff kind of interpreting this and drawing out specific meanings. They're saying stuff like, well, he really rates that she's got a full set of teeth. And, uh, and you know, her fe- features are symmetrical. So, you know, it's, 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 it's really good. And, you know, maybe, maybe. But listen, it's less about the physical resemblance, this, this poetic imagery. It's more about the symbolic meaning. So, so when he says, he talks about the, the strength and the majesty of the Tower of David, he's saying, look, you, you look strong and majestic, rather than any kind of physical resemblance to that. Whatever he's saying, he concludes um, down in, in verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You're 10 out of 10. You're perfect to me. You see, the night has passed. Johnny told us about the nighttime last week. The day now breaks. The time of their engagement and frustration of holding themselves back is over. And now on their wedding day, their love has matured into their lifelong commitment. The moment is now here. It's important for us to realize there is something categorically different about the marriage relationship to other relationships. And we need to honor that. Dating. Being engaged is not the same, and it is not like being married. And we ought not live like it is. But, but also here, we see the delight of the groom in his bride on his wedding day. And often when we think, as Christians, of that great wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of time, we think of our joy, we think of our delight in that day as heaven comes to earth and, and all sin is gone and we taste the fullness of life for the first time. And you know what? It's right to think of that. But here's a new insight for us into that day. This gives us a glimpse into the joy and the delight that Jesus, as the groom, has on that day. The groom on his wedding morning, excited, today I'm getting married to the girl of my dreams. I'm going to live with her forever. That excitement of the groom is the excitement of Christ. That's his delight in you, if you're a Christian, being with him his beautiful and his perfect people, and he's going to live with us forever. That's a wonderful insight, isn't it? The delight that he has in us. Behold the beautiful couple. Here's our second scene, though. Hear his delight in her. My second favorite moment at a wedding, probably. 
that beautiful fun moment when the, the groom stands to give his speech after dinner. And very often he starts, on behalf of my wife and I, and everyone claps and cheers, don't they? Because that's the first time he said, called her my wife. It's that moment, it's a beautiful moment. Everyone just, it just erupts at that moment. And that's what we've got in, in 4 and verse 8. This is the first time she has called his bride. And then five more times in this section, he just keeps saying it. My bride, my bride, my bride. A talented friend of mine, when he came to his groom's speech, he wrote a song about his wife and then performed it to everyone. Very impressive, isn't it? And that's what this groom does here. It's basically his speech It is a song. And like any good groom speech, he gushes, gushes with love and affection, telling anyone who will listen uh, what he loves about his bride, what delights him in her, how he feels about her. Pick it up in verse 9. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. As he gets going, this groom gets lost in how beautiful she is. And to be honest, he perhaps gets a little bit too personal and sensual than is appropriate or comfortable for a public speech. He goes on to describe her as a locked garden full of this beautiful exotic plants and fragrant spices. He calls her a sealed fountain that waters this garden. And in a moment, we'll come back and see how that represents her sexuality that he enjoys in the delight of the wedding night. But at this moment, he's just overwhelming her insecurities, which we've seen in the song so far, and her doubts of his extravagant love for her. And what he goes on to do as well, so often we do in our groom speeches, in our culture as well, is he makes these beautiful promises to his bride of what life with him will look like together, what his vision of their life together can be. Come with me, he says, and I will look after you. You'll be secure and safe with me. He invites her to come with him from life in the wilderness. He invites her to come from the desolate mountain regions where it's all barren and hostile and there's these dangerous wild animals. And he says, come with me into life in a flourishing and a beautiful, secure garden. It's this beautiful vision from a groom to his bride of the life he offers to share with her. What life can be like for the one that he delights and loves in. Now hear this. Hear this if you're a Christian, as Christ delight in you and as the life that he offers you. A friend said to me this week, I just don't believe and feel like he loves me. You know what, I can relate to that too. I'm sure you can. I'm sure there's times when we've all felt that. There's a great scene in a bit of a classic film, Cool Runnings, um, which I think everyone must have seen that, no? Yeah? I mean, it's very old, I know that, but it's, a, okay, if you haven't, you need to go and see it. It's about the Jamaican bobsleigh team, and um, it's, a, it's a true story, but a great film. Uh, this character, Yul Brenner, wants to help his friend Junior see what he sees uh, about him so he can live differently. And he takes him to the mirror, and he says, look in the mirror and tell me what you see. And he kind of sheepishly replies, I see Junior. 
And he said, you see, Junior? Well, let me tell you what I see. I see pride. I see power. I see a badass mother, a badass mother who don't take no crap off of nobody. And then he gets Junior to say it again and again. And he kind of gets more and more passionate and, and until he's shouting in the mirror. Until he really believes it. And then he really goes and lives by it. And then they have a bar fight. You, you watch the film. It's funny. It's funny. But the point being this. Yeah, he just gets an absolute tanking by some... <laughs> He needs him to look in the mirror and see what he sees. See what he sees in it. As Christians, we look in the mirror at our souls. And so often we see our faults. So often we see our struggles. So often we see our battles of sin. We see the weeds in our character. Now listen, those are all things that need to be acknowledged and confessed. They can't be denied. But this is a picture of the soul of the Christian to Christ. All beautiful, all exotic plants, all sweet fragrances. He sees and he feels something altogether different to what we so often see and feel. It's as if Christ is, is a passionate and a joyful gardener, slowly cultivating the inner garden of your life to be a beautiful and flourishing garden. And as a joyful and passionate gardener, as he works on the garden of our life over time, he takes great joy and delight in what he sees growing. As he sees a beautiful rose bush flower over here, or a sturdy and fruitful apple tree over there, or a lovely uh, bed of flowering plants over there. We often think and, and you know, see and focus on the patchy lawn or, or the weeds over there. But here's the tension. And his heart is drawn to and delights in the good that he sees and finds in us. The good that he plants in us and is cultivating in us. You know, it's really interesting in this poem, these exotic plants and these spices that are described here, they're not native to that time and that place where that garden is. So much of what is found in this beautiful and flourishing garden has been imported from all over the known world at the time into this garden. You never find all of these things in one garden back then. And so too with our souls. Christ gives to us. Christ grows in us by his divine grace what he finds beautiful and what brings him delight. It's not our gifts we naturally have. It's not our talents. It's not our good works. It's not our physical appearance or our abilities that we naturally have that ultimately delight him, but it's what he implants in us by his spirit. And then what he grows in us. Things that wouldn't naturally grow in our souls, but he takes great joy and delight to form in us the character that he has and that he delights and he, he takes great joy and delight to, to bring us into the graces that he has and, and, and give us gifts that are expressed to his glory by the, and, and, and as we see the fruit of the Spirit flower and flourish in our life and he sees that growing and he tastes and he, he observes it, it brings him delight and joy. However slowly and however painfully and however falteringly. Christ's beauty, which is given to us and then grows in us as his people until one day together we're a radiant bride, altogether lovely, 
altogether beautiful with no flaw. No flaw. Hopefully we're starting to see, hopefully we're starting to feel the profound, life-changing depths of Christ's love for us. Jesus loves me so much more than we at first realize. And here's the third and the final scene from the wedding day. And we rejoice that they are one at last. We come here to, to the heart of the Song of Songs in 4 verse 16 and 5 verse 1. There's 111 lines before this. There's 111 lines after this. And in Hebrew writing, and especially Hebrew poetry, the middle, the center, is the heart. It is the point. And so what is the beating heart of this song? Well, it's the wedding night. It is the consummation of the marriage relationship in the tenderness and the delight of sexual intimacy. This love that they've had to work so hard not to awaken or arouse before this time, now it can be awakened in the right and good context of marriage. And so the woman invites the winds to come and spread these beautiful fragrances of her garden, which represents her sexuality, so that she may be enjoyed by her husband. The secret garden is unlocked by the key of marriage, and the couple enjoy the fruits of it together. And as they do, we see this beautiful oneness within which their sexuality is enjoyed and expressed. You see in 5 verse 1, nine times, he says, my my, my about her as he delights in her intimacy. 20 times in this poem we've read today, he says, my. It's this personal possessive. He is hers and she is his. As many of us have said in our marriage, in our wedding vows, with my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. In marriage, we give ourselves to another fully and completely and unreservedly. And there's a beautiful mutuality of two people doing that in marriage. And so our poem closes today for this couple as they're cheered on by their friends. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. They're sent off from their marriage, um, from their wedding into their marriage. And their friends and, and bridesmaids and co say, enjoy it. Fill yourselves up with this good gift of love and sexual intimacy. Satisfy yourselves on it. You no longer have to wait for it, but go for it, friends. That's the message from those around. Now listen, the message of the Bible is crystal clear. Sex and sexuality is a good gift from God to be received with thanks and enjoyed. It's not something dark and dirty to hide from God or anything to be ashamed of. But also it's not something to worship as if it was, as if it was God itself. No, but with the right heart and the right mind, sex can and is designed to be an act of worship to God. Do you, do you see here how the poetry, particularly here, but actually this is true for the whole song, it's, it's very sensual. And it's very beautiful. It's erotic even. And yet it's never explicit. It's never vulgar. It's never crass or crude. You could say this is a PG-80 rating and not an 18. It upholds the privacy. It upholds the beautiful mystery of sexual intimacy. We get a subtle sense of their intimacy here. But it's as if then the groom gently closes the door and the bride pulls the shades down. 
this is the part of the wedding day that we don't get to see as guests entirely appropriately. Whereas in our culture, so much of our approach to sex is so explicit, so out there, so, so public and pornographic even. Intimate things and intimate moments shared far and wide. And in that, ultimately, it's degrading of people and it's degrading of our sexuality. And it cheapens to something being totally worthless what is such a precious gift. I want us to see that this song, that God's word celebrates, it honors and it upholds sexual intimacy whilst maintaining the dignity and the appropriate privacy that these things deserve. And secondly, I want us to see the right framework for sex is covenant, and it is not consent. Consent's the sexual ethic of our day. And let me say that consent is such a hopelessly flimsy and feeble way to conduct our sexuality and our sexual relationships. It has caused untold pain and damage in our world. It's supposed to liberate and it imprisons. We see at the moment in the life of Russell Brandt and the stuff that's come out. He's the guy who has lived the consent sexual ethic to its fullest and to its best. Apparently, at one point in his life, he had 80 different sexual partners per month. And look at just the destruction that comes with that way of living. But covenant, covenant is lifelong and exclusive, other-centered love. It is commitment publicly declared, then publicly held accountable and consistently followed through. Covenant is the key that unlocks the garden of sexual intimacy in God's design. Covenant is the secure context. It's the lifelong bond within which sexual intimacy can and does flourish. It is not to be taken by force. It is not to be given just to anyone and everyone, but like a private garden, it's enjoyed by just the, the, the key holder. And listen, the Bible calls that relationship one flesh. That's something that God establishes in marriage. Now, I used to hear one flesh, and I used to think, well, that's a reference to sexual oneness. But it's not. Well, it is, but it's just so much more, and it's so much deeper. No, one flesh is the mysterious union where God makes two people one in heart and soul and in body. And so sexual intimacy is the crowning expression of what it means to be one flesh. It's the crowning experience and enjoyment of it, but it's not the sum total of it. Sexual intimacy is the communion that is the experience of the union of marriage. It's the lived out experience of that one flesh relationship. And in the security of a covenant established by God upon public marriage vows, the vulnerability of sexual intimacy can grow and can be enjoyed as intended by our good creator. I know how unpopular it is to say what I've just said. I also know how good and beautiful it is. I think we see all around us in the world how destructive other ways of approaching these things are, if we're honest. Now, as we close... Some theologians and pastors feel a little bit bit uneasy about applying some of this pretty erotic and sensual imagery to our relationship with God. 
And listen, while the song ought never lead us to be crude in how we think about God, it is not a shame to lead us into the passion with which God loves us and to seek to stir up in us a corresponding passion for him. We should feel no shame in that. We don't need to be squeamish about that, but we can embrace the depths of love that we can experience in a relationship with God and we can stoke the fires of love for him in response. Spiritually, Christians are one with Christ through faith. Theologians call that our union with Christ. What this song encourages us to do spiritually is to drink our fill of love and enjoy the great depths of our communion with him. Yes, you are one with God in Christ. Live and enjoy and experience that to its fullness in your communion with him. Self-consciously enter into that and know what it means to be a soul at one with Christ. And do that by beholding him. Do that by delighting yourself in him. Do that by enjoying the nearness of his presence and his gracious work in you. Well, listen, anyone who's, who's married or has been married knows the reality of marriage is that at different points you feel more or less in love. At different points it's going better or worse in our marriages and a whole range in between. It doesn't matter how you feel any given day, particularly in the end. It doesn't matter how good or bad in the end it's really going. That doesn't stop you being married. You're married throughout. It is the security of that union that actually enables you to get through those things and actually enables your love to grow in depth and your delight in your marriage to grow and you to build something that is meaningful and good and secure and intimate. It is the union of marriage that enables the communion to grow and to be experienced and to flourish. And so too spiritually. We're united with Christ and that can never be taken from you. That is secure and that is constant once and for all. And that is the context in which you experience his love. In which you you get to know him more each day. In which your love for him can grow and you can return to him. That is the context in which you experience his spirit's gracious work in your heart. Beautifying you and making you flourish and flower. And making you more like him until one day you are spotless and radiant. Until one day we will behold him. And one day we will be just like him. For we will see him as he is. And in that day, and forevermore, we will enjoy the life to the full that he has promised to his people. This wonderful future that our husband has for us, and even now is preparing for us. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll carry on. Lord, it's it's just such a beautiful vision that you have for us of what life can and what life should be like. Both in our relationship with you and the delights of that. And even in our relationships with one another, most particularly today in our romantic relationships and in our marriages. Oh Lord, we're captivated by this vision. It is beautiful and it is compelling. But Lord, we're also 
grieving and mourning. We're hurt because each of us knows that our lives in so many ways have not been like this, have not lived up to this. Things have been done to us. We have done things. We've experienced things. We've got things wrong and, and we carry the pains and the hurts of those things. Both spiritually in our relationship with you and, and, and in relationships with others, Lord, we, we pray for your love to heal us. We pray for your love to comfort us, to be a balm for our souls, to restore us. Lord, thank you that you come in grace. Lord, restore us, renew us, win us again. Help us to love you and make us beautiful, we pray. That we may enjoy life with you and life with one another as you have intended and planned it for us. Lord, it will be for our good, but it will also be for your glory. Amen.